Our first reading is Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. More than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. The word of the Lord. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. Today's gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 to 6. The Lord be with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The Gospel of Christ. So remain standing. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word through which you speak to us and reveal yourself to us. So I would pray in light of that truth that I as preacher just get out of the way far, far less of me and far, far more of you. That your people gathered this day would be edified, your son Jesus glorified. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? There's a reality that every single one of us has faced, is facing, and will face again. And that is the reality of suffering. For the last two years, we have been all immersed in a common experience of suffering. There's not been one aspect of our lives that hasn't been impacted diminished, as we've been cut off from those we love, cut off from the things we love, cut off from the supports that we need. And this has sped along other experiences of suffering, relational angst, failing marriages, declining mental health, underlying illnesses that have not gotten caught soon enough. We've had Loved ones die, and only a select few were able to gather around us in their sorrow. We've graduated, we've gotten married, we've had kids, and only a select few have been able to gather around us to celebrate. We were exposed to the horrors of racial injustice. 
Racially motivated murders were recorded, displayed. Protests erupted. Bodies long buried were uncovered. Geopolitical tensions rose and then bubbled over into war, and we anxiously wait what might happen next. All of us have faced, are facing, and will face again the reality of suffering. And if we're honest, most of us feel ill-equipped to face it, to navigate it. This year, we've been working our way through the Psalms of Ascent, an ancient process of formation that was engaged in by Jewish pilgrims as they ascended to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, as they learned together what it was to live God's way in God's world. And we've been joining them as we're ascending to celebrate the Easter feast. Our psalm today, Psalm 130, which I'll invite you to turn to in your Bibles or in your Bible app or your pew Bible in front of you, the blue one on page 573, finds the psalmist desperately crying out in the midst of suffering, articulating a pathway through it, and then inviting the entire community to that same navigation. For the psalmist invites us to emotional honesty deep repentance, and attentive waiting in community. The psalmist invites us to navigate suffering with emotional honesty, deep repentance, and attentive waiting in community. So first, emotional honesty. How are you? I'm fine, we say as if by rote. But are you fine? Verse 1, how to the depths I cry to you, O Lord. I've never been so scared as on that day. As I often do on my days off in the fall, I'd gone duck hunting in the marsh near my in-laws. My hope had been to train our family dog as a retriever. And this was his first day with me afield. I just wanted him with me to get used to the smells and the sounds and the sights didn't work out so well. The first crack of my 12-gauge, and Max was so scared, he jumped out of the canoe and then got stuck under the canoe. (laughs) Without thought of the consequences, I jumped into the marsh after him, was able to corral him and put him back into the canoe, and Max was safe, but I wasn't. Many have died in that marsh. There's no solid bottom. The mud, the silt is deep and grabs onto you and just won't let go, and movement only makes matters worse. My boots were now full of water and felt like lead weights, and with no weight now in the canoe, the high winds that day were tearing at my grip on the only thing that led to my survival, that canoe. There was no point in crying out, because the nearest farm was miles away. Never been so scared as I was that day. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. The psalmist opening phrase expresses the feelings of that experience. It paints a picture of floundering in the water with nothing to grab a hold of, 
We straighten our legs and find no bottom on which to steady ourselves. We're tossed to and fro at the mercy of the waves. Panic rising, we cry out until we can cry no more. Unable to see the shore, there's no direction with which to expend our energy. And our energy is spent simply staying afloat, knowing that it's only a matter of time before the water swallows us whole. That is the experience that the psalmist is reflecting when he says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. There's probably been times in all of our lives, perhaps even now, where you have cried out in the depths, tossed to and fro on the mercy of circumstance, nothing solid to grab a hold of, nothing solid beneath our feet, no hope on the horizon, no path through it with which to expend our energy, and we simply have enough energy to stay afloat. And our cries for help, our cries for mercy seem to be resting upon deaf ears. Will rescue ever come? Will hope ever show up on the horizon? How to the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Now in the person of faith, the presence of suffering often begins to erode conviction. As we saw in our gospel reading with John the Baptist, he's been put in prison and and doubts begin to, to rise up. If this Jesus is who I said he was, then why am I here in prison? This is no way to treat a faithful person. Wasn't he supposed to bring down fire upon the wickedness of the Romans? That's what I said he would do, and now the fire seems to be coming down upon me. And you can hear that kind of doubt with the psalmist. Experience isn't matching conviction. The psalmist uses different names for God here. First, I cry out to you, Yahweh. It's the covenant name. How is it that you have committed yourself to us, God, to be our God and we your people and we're here down in the depths? Verse 2, O Adonai, the psalmist is now crying out to the God who has power. Adonai, you've got the power to do something here, and it doesn't even seem like you're listening to me. Then comes a demand, a desperate plea. Adonai, hear my voice, listen to me. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. There's an incredible depth of emotional honesty here. A mixture of desperation, doubt, anger, panic, despair. And if that's where the psalm ended, it would be gift enough to us. Giving us words to set our suffering squarely, openly, passionately before God. For there's so much that limits us from being honest with our emotions. So much pressure that we're under, to present ourselves as if we have it all together. In his book, In the Psalms of Ascent, Eugene Peterson speaks how our culture chokes out such emotional honesty. He says, we live in a time where everyone's goal is to be perpetually healthy and constantly happy. And if anyone fails to live up to the standards that are advertised to be normative, 
We are labeled as a problem to be solved. And a host of well-intentioned people rush to try out various cures on us. But to be perpetually healthy and constantly happy is, as Ivan Illich puts it, a myth. It denies suffering and pain. It devalues the experience of suffering and leaves us out of touch with reality. But we swim in such a climate. And being part of a faith community often makes it worse. For in religious circles, there is fear in admitting and facing our feelings. Why? Because there's often a heretical belief that sits just under the surface. It says, if I'm good, God's going to bless me. If I'm good, God's going to listen to me. But if what is going on inside isn't what we would call good, then we can't admit it. We're unable to bring to light the dark, intense, turbulent feelings. You know, I've had the experience a number of times as a pastor where someone's come to me for pastoral care and they share with me something they've shared with no one else. The agonizing family life or the agonizing internal life that they're experiencing. And then right after they share it, they stop coming to church. I follow up with them and they tell me they feel exposed. They feel as if no one else around them is experiencing that thing. And in shame, they feel disqualified from the company. And I say to them, but they never seem to believe me. You know, on a Sunday, I look out on a sea of faces. And I might not know all of the stories. But I know enough of them to know that behind every face is a story. A suffering, a sorrow, a pain a tumultuous heart, my own included. There's this cultural and religious pressure to present as if you have it all together. But the psalmist invites us to emotional honesty. Why? Because how can God meet us? How can those around us meet us if we can't admit to where we actually are? Now, after bearing their soul... Where does the psalmist invite us next? It's the oddest of places. The psalmist moves from emotional honesty to deep repentance. The psalmist holds himself up before the holiness of God, holds himself up before God's absolute perfection, and says, verse 3, If you, O Lord, were to keep a record of wrongs, who would stand? Now, there's a common human experience that serves, I think, as a pointer to what the psalmist is doing here. Uh, let's say you're a musician, and in the circles that you travel in, you're the best. Everyone praises you for your skill and accomplishment, but you want to grow and develop in those skills, and so you go to a major center, you go to a prestigious school, you gather with those who are the best and the brightest but now you're not the best anymore. In light of others, you're second rate. You always knew that there was room for improvement, but now in light of their skill, you're exposed. The praise that you once get, got, they now receive. 
and envy and hatred begins to creep in as you can't stand being around them because they expose you. Now, if that's the reality, when we get around the greatness of another, how much more so when we get into the presence of God? It would completely dismantle us. And the psalmist is already in the depths of despair. Why then would they choose to place themselves before the holiness of God? This is part of the pathway through suffering. As in many cases in the life of faith, the way up is down. The psalmist takes a step back from the situation that is causing such despair, holds themselves before the holiness of God and asks, where have I gone wrong in this situation? How have I contributed to it? Is there something in this for which I need to take responsibility? Is there an apology that needs to be made? A course correction that needs to be taken? Am I dealing with this in ways that are actually contributing to my sorrow? Blaming, numbing, escaping, distracting? Am I reacting to my lack of control over this situation by trying to control that situation or this person over here? Now that work of deep repentance is, is needed as we navigate suffering. Why? Well, let me give an example. When a marriage, or any relationship for that matter, fails, very quickly, narratives get constructed, right? You'll ask one of them, well, what happened? And they'll point to the other person, and they'll say, well, that person did this, that, and this other thing. And you, you go to the other person, and they point the finger the other way. Well, this person did that, this, or the other thing. And you know that the true story is probably some mixture of both of those stories. But each is trying to cover over their own sin with the sin of the other person. Now, if they're ever going to navigate from the sorrow of that broken relationship to health in themselves or health in a subsequent relationship, acknowledgement of the part that they had to play, a turning from their own sin of the situation has got to happen. In repentance, they must honestly examine themselves before the holiness of God. Well, you might say, Ugh, why would I ever want to do that? The pain of that broken relationship is hard enough without adding the sorrow of admitting my sin. But again, the way up is down. For the psalmist is doing that work and inviting all of us to do that work in light of what they say next. Verse 4. For with you, God, there is a forgiveness that you might be feared. Meaning the forgiveness of God is so lavish, restorative, generous, all-encompassing that it leads the psalmist to a place of awe. Wonder, reverence, fear. Why would we ever settle for covering over our own sin with the sin of the other person? Yes, I did that, but they did this other worse thing. When our sin can be covered over with the lavish, generous forgiveness of God, a forgiveness that will change us. Now, self, such self-examination before the holiness of God leads us to another necessary place as we navigate suffering. For in that self-examination, we discern where 
we have some responsibility over the circumstances and where we have none. Where we have control over it and where we have none. And in that, the psalmist invites us to give it over to God. To acknowledge where we have no control over our circumstances. To give it over to God. And then wait. You see, there's no punctuation in Hebrew. And so if you wanted to emphasize it, something, if you wanted to draw attention to something above everything else, you repeated it. Now, there's only one repeated phrase in this psalm. It's in verse 6. I wait for the Lord more than the night watch for the morning, more than the night watch for the morning. The night watch. A soldier stands on the wall, eyes piercing the darkness. Spear held at the ready that can be let fly in the face of danger. Intently looking for the, the ladder placed against the rampart, the sound of the rope running over the wall, the drawn blade in the moonlight. Without such attentiveness, the lives and the livelihood of the citizens of the city would be vulnerable. I wait for the Lord more than the night watch for the morning, more than the night watch for the morning. The psalmist invites us to lay the situation before God and then wait as the night watches for the morning. But oh, how we detest waiting, don't we? We're a culture of instant gratification, overnight shipping, and express lanes. When the physician responds to our physical pain by saying, what you need is some diet, exercise, and physio, and six to eight months from now, you'll be pain-free. No, no, we don't want that. We want the pill. We want the surgery. We want the shorter timeline. We detest waiting. And most of us wait with fear and anxiety. We wait with our focus locked on our circumstances. We wait with the ever-present concern that we will be swallowed up. We wait stewing about the problem. We wait scheming about solutions. We wait taking the first exit strategy that presents itself, rarely the wise one. We just want the waiting to end. But the psalmist invites us to wait with a particular posture and a particular hope. You see, the psalmist isn't waiting with a focus on the circumstances, the situation, the suffering. The psalmist is waiting with a keen attentiveness to the character of the God that they wait on. There's an attentiveness to his steadfast love, his forgiveness, his word, his faithfulness to his promises. It's a waiting that is wide awake to God. It's also a waiting with hope. The night watches for the morning with the guarantee that dawn will come. We wait with the promise, the guarantee that Jesus is returning to make everything new. And we don't wait alone. We don't wait in isolation. You see, there's a turning in the psalm in verse 7, a turning from the singular to the plural. Verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Attentiveness to the character of the God in the midst of waiting is something that requires all of us 
a community. A community who by prayer and worship and proclamation points to the character of the God that we wait on. Now, if you're crying out in the depths, the church can be a very lonely and isolating place to be. How can everyone around me be singing songs of praise to the goodness and love of God when my situation leads me to wonder if God is even good or loves me? How can those around me be affirming the hope that Jesus is coming to make everything new when I'm hanging on by a thread? But the psalmist is saying, that's the very thing you need. You need that community around you to point to that hope. You need that community around you to root you in the assurance of who God is. The assurance of what he's done for us in Jesus. The assurance of what he's promised to do. It was J.C. Ryle, a former Anglican bishop in Liverpool, who spoke of how assurance of what Jesus has done for us helps us to navigate the depths from which we cry. And this is what he wrote. Now assurance goes far to set a child of God free. It enables us to feel that the great business of life is a settled business. The great debt, a paid debt. The great disease, a healed disease. And the great work, a finished work. Such that all other business, diseases, debts, works are then by comparison small. In this way, assurance makes us patient in tribulation, calm under bereavements, unmoved in sorrow, not afraid of evil tidings, in every condition content, for it gives us a fixedness of heart. It sweetens our bitter cups, it lessens the burdens of our crosses, it smooths the rough places over which we travel, and it lightens the valley of the shadow of death. It makes us feel that we have something solid beneath our feet, something firm within our hands, a true friend along the way, and a true home at the end. So let us cry out from the depths in emotional honesty. Repent in light of his glorious healing forgiveness and wait expectantly together for his word to speak his love to embrace, and with the assurance that he will return to make everything new. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.